Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The eleventh Sunday after Trinity, Luke eighteen, nine to fourteen. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In our Savior, dearly beloved hearers, if a person is going to be saved, he must first be made righteous before God. This is an undeniable and irrefutable truth. God is not a God who has pleasure in godless ways. He who is wicked does not stand before him. God would have to cease to be God, that is, the eternal perfect being, if he wanted to unite you eternally with an unrighteous creature. Fire can as little be connected with water or light with darkness as God, the pure eternal light, the fire which consumes sin can be united with unrighteous man. Moreover, God has given his law to man and said, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19. There the matter must rest for time and eternity. When God created man, he wrote this law into man's heart. Everyone's conscience reprimands him when he sins and tells him that he has displeased God. But because of the fall, it has erased most of man's knowledge of the law. Yes, has often made it illegible. God, through Moses, publicly and solemnly gave the law again on Mount Sinai and repeated, confirmed, and caused it to be explained by all his prophets and apostles. God must remain God, as certainly as he does not want to, will not, and cannot recall this law. Christ the Savior himself did not come to repeal it. He says in his Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5. We can therefore be certain that man cannot be saved if he does not have a righteousness which corresponds to the perfect righteousness in God's holy law. To be sure, it is true that God is love, goodness, patience, forbearance, and mercy itself. But God is also holiness and righteousness itself. All these attributes are God's very essence. He also has them in all equally high degree. Men can do something out of love and thereby violate righteousness, 
But this is impossible with God. God is not a God who gives a law and is then satisfied if it is not perfectly kept. No, what he commands and what he threatens must happen. And heaven and earth would sooner be destroyed than that these things would not happen. All who believe that God is like a weak human father, who is not always serious when he demands and threatens, merely violate God's majesty. And their God is nothing but an imaginary self-made God, nothing but an idol. All those whose righteousness is not as perfect as the righteousness which God's law demands and rely instead on God's love hope in vain and will be lost as certainly as God is a holy and righteous God. Is it then really possible for a person to acquire a righteousness himself which is valid before God? Are not all men even from birth full of sinful thoughts and desires? And if God's commands are held before him, which adult can without lying saying, All these I have kept, Matthew 19, or I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin, Proverbs 20. Must not everyone, even the most pious, rather confess? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. Must all men therefore be lost, so that God can remain righteous? No, no, my friends. There is a way, praise be to God's eternal mercy for this, by which every person, even the greatest sinner, can be righteous before God and be saved without God having to cease being a righteous God. It is a mystery which could not have entered the heart of man had not God himself revealed it to us in his gospel. This mysterious justification of a poor sinner before God is the subject of today's gospel. Luke 18, 9-14 Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his household justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So far our text. The most important word from this section just read is what the Lord says of the tax collector. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. From this we see that the Lord wishes to show by this parable how even a sinner can become righteous before God. On the basis of this parable, permit me to speak to you on how the gospel justifies a sinner. I want to show you three things. Wherein this justification consists, the firm foundation it has, and by what means alone it is received. My friends, Every religion wishes to show man the only way he can be righteous before God and thus be saved. And now what do the religions teach in this way? The heathen says, if you wish to be righteous, give everyone his due. 
if you have not always fulfilled this duty, sacrifice to the gods. The Jew says, if you wish to be righteous, be circumcised and keep the law of Moses and the traditions of our elders. The Muslim says, if you wish to be righteous, confess that there is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet and conform to the rules of our Quran. The Papist says, if you wish to be righteous, keep the commandments of God and the church. If you wish to be absolutely certain of your salvation, leave the world, enter a cloister, and keep the threefold oath of poverty, chastity, and obedience. The enthusiast says, if you wish to be righteous, pray, wrestle, and struggle until you have received another heart and feeling. But if you wish to be completely certain, do not rest until you are perfect and sin no more. The rationalist says, if you wish to be righteous, exercise yourself in virtue and do noble deeds. But if you have failed, feel sorry for it and better yourself. You see, that though the various religions give different answers to the question of how man can be righteous before God, they all boil down that man can be safe partly through outward good works, partly through inward moral improvement. But now, what does today's gospel say to that? In it, we find the very opposite. It presents a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee is described to us as a man full of so-called good works. The tax collector, on the other hand, is a poor sinner without a single good work. Of the Pharisee, we read that he went into the temple to pray. He, speak, he spoke there in his heart to God, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But we read that the tax collector could boast of none of these things. He had to feel ashamed before God and man on account of his past unrighteousness. He did not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and sighed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And yet, how amazing! Christ says that this tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. The Pharisee, with all his good works and righteousnesses before men, was not righteous before God. So, wherein does the justification of a sinner by the gospel consist? You see that it obviously is not that man, through so-called outwardly good works, or through an acquired or infused inner holiness, has made himself holy before God. It rather is that God graciously does not charge his sins to the man who is and remains a poor sinner, but in spite of them considers, views, and declares him righteous. Man's justification by the gospel is not a deed which man himself does, but which is done to him by God. It is not something which goes on in man's heart, but something which goes on outside man, in God's heart. It is not to be compared to the action of a doctor who actually frees the sick person of his sickness and restores him to health. But it is to be compared to the action of a judge who acquits an indicted and convicted criminal, not only releasing him from all punishment, but even in spite of his crimes, awarding him all the rights of a citizen in good standing. Man's justification by the gospel is not to be compared to an actual cleansing from stains, but to the putting on of a beautiful white garment which covers his stains.
It is the forgiveness of sins, and such a forgiveness, according to which God views the man as though he had never sinned, as though he always were as perfectly holy and righteous as God's law demands all men to be. Even David and all the saints of the Old Covenant understood well the secret of this justification. David does not write, Blessed is he who has never sinned and is clean from his sin, but blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Psalm 32. We have briefly briefly seen wherein the justification of a sinner by the gospel consists. The important question immediately arises whether it also is firmly founded. Permit me to speak to you of that. My friends, if a sinner hopes to be saved because he relies on God's goodness, he, as we have already heard, has no basis of this hope. God is not only love, but also holiness itself, not only good, gracious, patient, forbearing, but also is inviolably righteous. Consequently, even the justification of a sinner by the gospel appears to be without firm foundation. For it would seem that it would not help at all if God's grace considers, views, and declares him righteous, but if at the same time God's holiness and righteousness must judge and condemn the sinner. Does not man justification justification by the gospel therefore stand just as much in opposition to God's essence, attributes, will, and unalterable law as the justification which all the other false religions teach? Yes, it seems so, but God be praised. It merely seems so. Justification by the gospel is so firmly founded that nothing in heaven or earth or hell can overthrow it. I admit that this is not set forth in detail in the gospel. Nonetheless, it points out that most clearly. We are told in our text that the tax collector who went down to his house justified had sighed, God be merciful to me, a sinner. If one examines what these words really mean in the original language, one sees that the tax collector had really wanted to say, God be reconciled with me, a sinner. So you see that the tax collector had not taken his refuge in the goodness and grace of God at all. He had founded his hope on that grace which should be won for men by the Savior's work of reconciliation. That is the firm foundation on which justification by the gospel rests. Briefly, it rests on the work and word of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. Bear in mind, when man had fallen into sin, there was no help from us or from the angels or from any other creature. Yes, it seemed as if even God himself could not rescue us. For should even God want to forgive us out of his grace, his stern, inviolable righteousness would eternally object to it. Yet, as impossible as it would have been for all creatures to give advice or find a way to help, for God's eternal wisdom, this was not impossible. It knew and devised means. And what did God do? Since we men could not ourselves pay the incalculable guilt of our sins, and God's righteousness could not declare us righteous without a payment for them, behold, O wonder of all wonders, God commanded his only begotten Son to become a man, 
and imputed our guilt of sin unto him. He, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, thus paid our debt in our place through his holy life and his bitter suffering and death. And when he had paid our debt to the last penny, God the Father again awakened him from the dead and gave him authority to have the complete payment of their debt proclaimed, offered, and presented to all men, and with it forgiveness, righteousness, life, and salvation. See? There is the foundation of the justification of the sinner by the gospel. And it is this foundation that is really strong enough. Tell me, can there yet be a doubt whether his debt can be charged to the debtor when another has already paid his whole debt for him to the very last penny? Can righteousness still hinder grace in declaring such a debtor debt-free? May not rather righteousness itself Pass the sentence of grace? Yes, that is the way it is, my friends. So, God ascribes justification by the gospel or the forgiveness of sins in a wonderful way, not to grace, but actually to the faithfulness and righteousness of God, and says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9. Thus, we are assured that the sinner's justification by the gospel stands unshakable, resting upon God's righteousness, holiness, and faithfulness, as well as on his goodness and grace. It is based on the fact that God's Son has already reconciled all men, paid their debt of sin, won and offered them forgiveness and righteousness. At least, my friends, we now know wherein the justification of the sinner by the gospel consists and its firm foundation. Let us also in the third place try to understand how it is acquired. According to our text, the Pharisee did not acquire it. Why not? Not because he was free from gross sins and was an honorable man in the eyes of the world, but because, as we read in the beginning of our text, he belonged to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt because he was self-righteous. But now, why did the tax collector go down to his house justified in God's eyes rather than the other? Why was he the one who acquired this greatest and most precious gift of all gifts? As we see from our text, he never in all the world thought of doing something about which he could boast before God in order to be justified. Rather, a poor, lost, and condemned sinner, burdened and oppressed by the load of his great guilt, despairing completely of his righteousness and piety, he went as he was into the temple as a poor, lost, and condemned sinner. Here he sought that help which he did not find in himself, beat on his breast and only sighed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or, as we read more clearly in the original text, God, be reconciled to me, a sinner. Casting aside all other comfort, he made the reconciliation of the Savior his only comfort. What should take place for all sinners, that he ascribed especially to himself, that he seized in faith, and lo, he went down, as the Lord expressly states in our text, justified to his house. Tell me, according to our text, 
How is one justified by the gospel? In one word, it is by faith and by faith alone. There can be absolutely no other way. What must a debtor do whose bill another has paid that he might be debt-free? He must accept the payment already made for him. What must an offender do with whom the offended person has already become reconciled that he might also become reconciled? He must accept the reconciliation. What must the prisoner do whose prison has already been opened that he might enjoy freedom? He must accept the freedom given to him and leave the prison. What must the indicted and convicted criminal do who already is pardoned that he might enjoy the amnesty? He must accept it. Now look, the debt of all men's sins has already been paid for by Christ. God is reconciled. The prison of God's wrath and hell is opened. The amnesty of all men is accomplished and is announced and offered to all men by the gospel. What should and can a person do in order to be able to enjoy all this? Nothing, absolutely nothing further but to accept this. And this is exactly nothing else than believing. Yes, my friends, believing. Believing is the only way whereby justification by the gospel is acquired. Not because faith is such a good work or such an excellent condition of the heart that God wants to and must consider a man righteous, nor because a person must do something, even if only a little, but because man can do and has to do nothing, absolutely nothing for his justification, because his righteousness has already been won by Christ, and in his gospel it is offered, presented, and distributed to all who hear it. Hence Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10.4 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3.28 And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4.5 My friends, is this not an expressibly sweet, heavenly doctrine for us poor sinners? Can hell really be deep and painful enough for those who out of pride and self-righteousness reject this teaching and do not wish to be saved as poor sinners? Oh, that there might be no one among us to whom this doctrine is foolishness and an offense. This teaching is the bright sun of the Christian religion by which it differs from all other religions the way light differs from darkness. This teaching is the treasure which only our evangelical Lutheran Church has kept pure and to which it holds fast. Hold fast to this doctrine, my dear Lutheran brothers and sisters. If you do that, then you will always have the true ladder to heaven. Then in the darkness of all temptations, you will always have a brilliant light from heaven. In the high waves of death, you will have the true anchor of heaven, which will not let you sink. Ah, my dear friends, just now when cholera is again working its vengeance of death among us, just now we need the pure teaching of justification so much. It is the best, yes, the only safe preservative and remedy. If you use this means, no fear of death will torture you. 
And when death finally embraces you with its ice-cold arms, you will not despair, but in faith cry out with the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when your ear and eye and mouth close in death, all the angels in heaven and God himself will open their mouths and say about you, not this man went down, but up, yes, up into his house, into the mansions of heaven. May Jesus Christ, our mediator, our eternal righteousness, blessed in time and eternity, help us all. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.